I'm going to make a early to mid-90s reference, and hopefully you will get it. If I say the name Steve Urkel, does that mean anything to you? <clears throat> if it doesn't, that's okay. All you need to know, he was on a show called Family Matters, and he had this crazy, famous tagline, did I do that? And the point was, he was this nerd who was supposed to be super smart, but he was constantly doing things without thinking. And then disastrous consequences would occur, and he would say, did I do that? That's my best Steve Urkel impression. Um, I think today the guy that we're going to study probably said that more than any other guy in the Bible. Now, he didn't say it the way Urkel did it. Don't, don't get me wrong. This guy was not a nerd. He was a burly man's man. But when it comes to sticking your foot in your mouth, this guy did it pretty well. When it comes to acting before thinking, this guy did it pretty well. Now, I myself am typically not that type of person. I'm what people might call a slow mover, which will come out even more in this illustration I'm about to tell you, or this little story of my life that I'm about to tell you. I think about things. I analyze things. I take forever to make decisions. I think that means typically I make a good decision, but my wife loves and hates this about me at the same time. So I typically am not the impulsive, spontaneous guy in the room like Peter would be. I mean, Peter was brash. He, he was doing things before he thought. He was always the guy with Jesus that you just got the impression that Jesus was going, oh, Peter. But at the same time, he loved him. Now, though I don't do that very often, and maybe you're like me, you're a thinker, or maybe you're not, maybe you're like Peter, we can all identify with moments in our life where we just think to ourselves, I didn't think that through. That was not the smartest thing that I could have done. I kind of regret doing that. For me, it always comes out in competition. It always comes out when those competitive juices flowing. Seven or eight years ago, I was in an airport with about 10 other guys, most of whom are pastors at this church. Uh, one was Ricardo Stewart, who was the lead pastor over at Tempe. Ricardo Stewart uh, was a Division I ASU football player. He played safety. He runs a 40 in about 4.6 seconds. I run a 40 in about 6.6 .6 seconds. And again, that might be being gracious to myself. Like I said, I'm a slow mover. We were on the airport, and we were coming up to the moving walkway. And somehow someone suggested, or I made the claim that I could, in fact, beat Ricardo in a race if I were allowed to use the moving walkway. <laughs> we waited for it to clear, uh, and, and I lined up, he lined up, and we began to race. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is open and shut. This is a done deal, and now I'll be able to say I beat Ricardo Stewart in a race. This is like a claim to fame, right? So we take off. And, and I'm like, I'm moving faster than I've ever moved in my life. I mean, I felt like I was flying. And I'm going down the line, I'm going down the line, and I'm thinking, oh, he's nowhere near me. And I look back, and he's gaining on me. I mean, I shot off because I've got the moving walkway. But he's not just gaining on me, he's gaining on me fast. He passes me. Now he's pulling away from me, and I feel like I'm pulling a hamstring. And I, and I got to pull up. I fall off the end of the moving walkway. Everyone else who's with us is on the floor laughing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe not the smartest idea. Maybe I should have thought that one through a little bit. Now, now with Peter, we see these illustrations all over. I mean, this is the guy who, when Jesus tried to wash his feet, Peter said, oh, no, you're not washing my feet. 
This is the guy that when Jesus said, listen, I'm going to have to go to the cross, I'm going to have to die, and Peter, after just professing that he understood and knew that Jesus was the Christ, after just wisely saying, you know, Jesus says, who do, you, who do people say I am, or who do you say I am, and Jesus, well, you're, you're Jesus, you're the Christ. And then Jesus says, so I'm going to have to go to the cross, and I, we need to keep this quiet, and Peter says, pulls him aside. I, I just picture this, and I'm thinking, who do you think you are, Peter? You just said he's Jesus, he's the Christ. Jesus, come over here. You know that thing you said about dying? Not a good idea. I don't like that plan. We're not going to do that. I'll protect you to the end. I'll die in your name. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, from a high to a low. You're the one who just got it. You got the answer right, and then you got it so wrong. This is the same guy who when they came to take Jesus away, after Jesus had explained, this is what's going to happen, this is kind of what needs to happen, they come to take him away, and Peter's ready to fight. He's like, I got this sword, and I haven't used it yet, but it's here for a reason, and I'm ready to use it. They come to take him away, he whips out that sword, and just goes to town, and cuts off a servant of a high priest's ear. I'm thinking to myself, Peter, you really have never used a sword before. I don't understand. What, were you aiming for something and missed? And I always wonder, is this like one of those ironic, awkward situations where Peter is standing there and there's an ear on the floor and he's kind of looking at Jesus and Jesus, and Peter's going, I'm just going to stand over here. And Jesus picks up the ear and, you know, pops it back on, right? I'm just picturing Peter as this guy who has learned lessons the hard way, like his whole life. He's a guy who a lot of the other disciples probably got a kick out of, probably laughed at, maybe thought, what is this guy going to amount to? He is just a loose cannon. But in the story of Peter's life, there's so many stories of Peter's life that could make a whole message all on their own, but this morning, I just want to kind of take three snippets from Peter's life and learn about faith. We're going to get three lessons in faith from the life of Peter. And the first two we're going to move through kind of quick. Because I really want to get to kind of this third lesson and, and maybe camp there a little bit. So if you've got your Bibles with you, let's open to Matthew chapter 4, and we'll kind of start in the beginning. Like I said, uh, Peter is a, a disciple. He was one of the 12 disciples. And in the 12 disciples, so these people that kind of Jesus called and said, come follow me, and, and they came and followed Christ, they were kind of his friends, his companions in ministry. In the 12, there were groups of four. There were three groups of four, and each of those groups had a leader. It's kind of like this group of 12, and you had four of them that were really close to Jesus. Then you had the second four that maybe weren't quite as close, and then the third four that were still close to Christ, but maybe not quite as much, and they all had different responsibilities. Well, Peter was in that closest group to Christ. It was Peter, Andrew, James, and John, as you can imagine, because you hear a lot about them when you read your Bible. And Peter was, in fact, viewed as the leader of that group. So in a lot of ways, you can look at Peter and go, he was one of the first ones called as a disciple, and he was one of the closest, if not the closest, to Christ. And what we pick up in Matthew chapter 4 is Peter's calling. Peter's calling. If you look at verse 18, here's what he says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So the first thing we see Peter doing in in this moment, in the beginning of his life, is his burgeoning faith. He, He takes that first step. And the first thing we learn about faith is that faith has a cost. And I want to give you a working definition. It may not be the best definition um, for the term faith. I'm sure there's a lot more we could say about it, but it's something that has stuck with me from childhood. And it's been easy to remember and easy to weigh in myself if I'm lacking faith or having faith. And it's the simple acronym. So faith is F-A-I-T-H. And the simple acronym is this, forsaking all, I trust him. And maybe you've grown up around the church and you're familiar with that. But man, that has stuck with me. Forsaking all, I trust him. Peter came to a moment in his life where Jesus said, come. Jesus said, I am the Christ, I want you to follow me. Many of us in this room have had this moment where Jesus said, come. And for Peter, he had to forsake in order to trust Christ. He had to pick up and leave his fishing business. He had to pick up and in some senses leave the comfortable life or what he knew and follow Christ. So this first picture, this first little little story, we see that faith has a cost. And so moving quickly to the next one, we won't turn there, but I just want to tell you the story. We're going to find or we're going to see this lesson that faith has a cost, yes, but faith has a focus. Faith has a focus. So many of you know this story. It's very familiar. And even if you haven't been around church much, you would have heard of the story of Jesus walking on the water. Well, in in Matthew chapter 14, it talks about this. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And this all took place in the city of Bethsaida, which is interesting because it's where uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John are all from. So Jesus was spending a lot of time in the area where his disciples were from, and he was ministering to the community around them. He feeds the 5,000, and then he sends off his disciples in a boat ahead of him on the Sea of Galilee. This is a sea that, that Peter would have known well. He'd done a lot of fishing in it. And he was going on to the next destination, and Jesus kind of said, I'm staying here for a little while. You guys go ahead. I'll catch up to you. Lo and behold, it says at the fourth hour, or in between three and six in the morning, they see a figure walking on the water. Just think about that for a second. Picture it. Don't take it for granted. Don't feel like you've heard it before a million times. They see someone walking on the water. And they cry out, it's a ghost. Now remember, these are burly fishermen. These are are man's men. And in fact, one commentary I read said, fishermen at that time were gruff, unkempt, vile, shabbily dressed, and often used vulgar language. It sounds like how my wife would describe me on the weekend. Fishermen of the first century were a man's man. They were full of vigor and boisterous tempers. This is why James and his brother John were called the sons of thunder. So don't think Bassmasters. Think deadliest catch, okay? They weren't out there with a fishing pole. They were out there with nets, casting them out, lifting hundreds of pounds of fish into the boat. These were burly dudes. And they're like, ah, it's a ghost. Then God or Jesus calls out to him. And he says, don't be afraid, it's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter immediately... It's just like Peter would do. Say, guys, I got this. Don't worry. He says, if it's you, or since I believe it's you, why don't you tell me to come on out there with you? He says, all right, come on. Peter hops out of the boat. He starts walking. He's gaining his stride. Ooh, this water feels nice and solid. I'm walking. 
Then all of a sudden it says that he begins to consider the elements around him, the wind, the storm that might be brewing. He begins to consider those more than Christ, and he begins to sink. And he cries out, help me. Jesus reaches out to him, pulls him up, and he says, Peter, Peter, oh, you of little faith. See, faith has a focus. There's a beautiful parallel in Hebrews chapter 12 that Tim mentioned a little bit last week that says, we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says this in basically helping us understand what true faith is. After Hebrews chapter 11 where he gives us all these examples of these incredible saints who have gone before us and he says, listen, there was nothing so super special about them except that they had faith and you can have faith too and it means that you fix your eyes on Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith. So faith has a cost and faith has a focus and that focus is Christ. And now we come to this third and what I would submit to you, the most formative trial and experience of, of Peter's life. And it's one that most of us are probably familiar with. See, see Peter... We talked about these little stories before. Peter had gone through his life, and it seems like just at the moment where you think he's really getting it, he shows you that maybe he's not totally getting it. Jesus has to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. But you think, well, but at least now you know that when Jesus was talking about dying on a cross, you get it now. But no, they're standing there, and he chops off poor, the servant's name was Malchus. Poor Malchus lost an ear because Peter didn't totally get it. But there's a moment in his life, probably his, his greatest failure, where Jesus brings him back around and he finally gets it. And so if you have your Bibles there, it's just a, a, a book over Mark. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And we're going to read about Peter's denial of Christ. Jesus had predicted that Peter was going to deny him uh, shortly after this scene where he chops off Malchus's ear and Jesus heals it. He's going to the cross and I think Peter's just beside himself. He just doesn't, I, 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 one of those very low confidence moments. And Jesus has told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, no way. There's no way I'll ever do that. And he says, I tell you the truth, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And so we pick it up in verse, I think, 66 of Mark chapter 14. And it says this. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I don't know how many of you have seen um, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. 
And I don't know how accurate of a portrayal this scene is in that movie, but it's a pretty powerful scene. Uh, I mean, I think he takes a little bit of license there because I, I believe it's that, that movie where in that scene the rooster crows and you see Jesus Christ kind of being led away towards the mount and Peter's eyes meet Christ. And it tears him apart. This is a moment of defeat, a moment of devastation. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your life, a moment of utter failure, where you know and you feel and you sense that you're completely unworthy of Christ's love. You're you're completely unworthy of his grace. You feel like in the the time of that failure or that sin that, that maybe keeps coming back to you, that keeps tempting you, that you keep falling into, that there is no way that God can deliver you from this. There is no way that God can use you after this. And I would imagine that's what Peter felt. You see, because when we fail, and I want to include this in it too, sometimes it's our own sin that brings on the failure. It brings on that sense of failure. But sometimes... It's something that's happened to us. Sometimes it's something that has happened in our life where someone has sinned against us and we can't forgive and we can't get over it and we can't get past it. And what happens when we don't get past those things, when we can't forgive, now all of a sudden it's our sin too. It's our failure too. When we don't forgive, God calls that sin and so whether we are a, a victim of something or, or a failure in our own right by our own sin, I, I know Peter felt terrible. He felt the weight of this. And when this occurs, the devil is waiting. And he wants to preach you the anti-gospel. He wants to preach to you that, yeah, God could never love you. Or maybe he knows you're too smart for that. Maybe he knows you've been around church and, and you, you, you could at least say that God loves you, but he'll say this. But God could never use you. There's this sliding scale where maybe before you were 90% usable, now you're like 40% usable. God's not going to do anything big. God's not truly going to deliver. You're not, you're not worth that. That is so untrue. That is not the gospel. The good news of Christ reminds us that our salvation, our usefulness, our beauty to God has nothing to do with us and it has everything to do with Jesus Christ who died on a cross and gave us his righteousness. Peter needed reminded of these words. Peter needed to know this. And I don't know, I don't know exactly where Jesus found Peter when, when he came to him in this next passage. But Jesus does come because he resurrects. He raises from the grave three days later. And in that form, in John 21, and if you want to turn there really quickly, we'll spend the rest of our time. John 21, verse 15, Jesus comes and has this conversation with Peter. And maybe you've read this before, you've heard this before. Peter denies Christ three times, and Jesus has three questions for Peter. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. It's interesting to me the way that Jesus comes to Peter and what he says maybe in particular. But here's what I want you to see. If we've learned from these first two stories that, that failure has a cost and failure has a focus and it's Jesus, this next story and the rest of Peter's life teaches us this, that faith means that failure is not fatal. Failure is not fatal. Maybe that's a term that you've heard before. But here's the deal. Failure is inevitable. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. You're going to give the devil opportunities to speak anti-gospel words into your life. Failure is inevitable. But it isn't fatal. And so often, like in the life of Peter, it is formative. And it is going to shape you and form you and mold you in one of two ways. You are either going to believe the lie of the devil that this failure has a hold of you and will not let go of you and that Christ does not have power over it or you will believe the gospel because Jesus will preach the gospel to you and he will t- tell you, my grace is sufficient. My grace covers that sin. But it's interesting the way that Christ comes to Peter. And I think it tells us something about what we need to think about and what we need to consider when we're in that moment, when we need to get back up. That conventional wisdom or the psychiatric world or or therapeutic world would probably tell you that the question that Jesus asked Peter is probably not the best question. It's not the most helpful question. Because what I want to know when I've failed, I want to know that Jesus loves me. I want to know that he says it's going to be okay. But Jesus does not come and pity Peter. He does not come and patronize Peter. He doesn't come and say, oh, Peter, it's okay. You're just being Peter. He doesn't come and say, hey, Peter, don't worry about it. It's okay. You'll get up. I love you. I love you anyway. You're forgiven. And so often that's what the world tells us that we need. We need someone to to come and and, and put their arms around us. And I'm telling you, there are situations where that is for sure true. And that is the ministry of Christ in some situations. But during this failure and in many of our failures, I think the question we need to consider is what Jesus poses to Peter. Do you love Jesus? He doesn't come and say, Peter, I love you. And why is that? Because that question already has an answer. Jesus Christ has just gone to the cross for the sin of the world. He has just died the death that you deserve, that I deserve, that Peter deserved. He has just gone to the cross knowing that Peter had denied him three times, placed Peter's sin on him, placed your sin on him, placed my sin on him, and died for us, and then rose again in three days, conquering the grave and sin on our behalf. What more can Jesus do to prove and show his love? 
The question of whether or not Jesus loves you has been answered. He loves you. Are there times we might, be, we might need to be reminded of it? Yes. But it's answered. It's true. You being stuck in your failure is not dependent on whether or not Jesus loves you. You being stuck in your failure depends on whether or not you love Jesus. And that's what Peter needed. And that's what we need. That Jesus would come and say, do you love me? And he says it three times, and it says by the end, Peter is grieved, and here's why. In the Greek language, there's multiple words for the the word love. And the two that are used here, we won't get into some of the others, but the two that are used here are agape love and phileo love. Agape love is the selfless love. It's the love of will. It's the love of intention. It means that I am willing, ready, and able to lay down my life for you. I am making a mental decision to love you. It's that idea that love is a verb, the idea that it causes action. And the first two times that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me, he uses this word agape. He says, are are you ready to, with your mind and with your intention and with your will, to lay down your life? Are you ready to forsake all? And Peter answers in a unique way. He answers in an interesting way. He says, Jesus I love you. I I phileo love you. Now, this type of love is deep, intense, brotherly affection. It's a type of love that desires. It's a motive. It's not just a love of will. It's a love of emotion and a feeling, an intense, like, Jesus, I love you. It's it's not just that I'm willfully saying I'm going to set my life aside for you. It's that I, I desire you. I want more of you. And the reason that it grieves him the third time Jesus asks is because Jesus goes from asking him, do you agape love me, to do you phileo love me. Peter's just been saying it. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I'm just going to check with you one more time, Peter. Do you really desire me above all else? Do you really have an affection for me? Do you really want me with everything that you have? Because guess what, Peter? That's what the rest of your life is going to take. It's time to put your big boy pants on. Because I didn't come here to patronize you. I didn't come here to tell you everything's going to be okay. And guess what? Tomorrow you'll be with me in heaven. I came here to tell you that you're probably going to die an unpleasant death. I came here to tell you that I want to build my church on you. Do you love me enough for this? When we fail, when we're challenged, you need to ask yourself, do you love Jesus? Do you desire him? Do you want him more than anything else? See, because it's a funny thing that our emotions play games with us. In our humanness, I feel like sometimes it's easier to believe the bad news instead of the good news. It's easier to be a victim and think that that we have to do all the work or that the only person in control of whether or not this goes well is me. It's easier to be a victim and, and not have to believe in anything bigger than myself and not have to believe in a hero and not have to believe in someone who did everything for me when I did nothing. And it makes me ask myself, am I, are you, are we capable of the type of overwhelming gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross? that we would live a consistent life 
of sold-out faith and obedience, forsaking all. And that does, that it's not just the tangible things. It's not saying, well, I know there's some things in my life that I used to like to do that I'm going to have to stop doing if I follow Christ. It's not, it's not saying, well, I know there's this job that I might have to give up or this thing that I might have to give up. It's forsaking your ideal. It's forsaking your ideal. It's forsaking that emotion that tells you that Jesus doesn't love you when in fact Jesus does. It's forsaking that idea when you fail that now all of a sudden you can't look Christ in the eye and you can't have him as your focus. But the Bible says that you can. You forsake that humanistic teaching, that humanistic thought that says, I have to earn this back. And you trust in him. And you recognize that just like with Peter, God can take failures and turn them into incredible strength. God can take failures and advance his kingdom. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up, the very beginning of the church. He gives an incredible message empowered by the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people are saved. This is shortly after he denies Christ three times. You move on to Acts chapter 4, and Peter is saying, I cannot stop talking about Jesus. I can't stop. You can arrest me. You can tell me to stop talking about Jesus, but I will not stop talking about Christ. And then eventually we're told by historians that Peter is crucified, and he tells those taking him to the cross, I do not feel worthy to be crucified in the same way as my Savior. I want to be crucified upside down. From utter failure to tremendous faith. From a time of incredible weakness to a time of incredible strength. So if you're in that moment where you feel failure, where you feel like you're the victim of something that God can't overcome, take courage. God loves you and he's proven it. The question is, do we love and desire him the way that he loves and desires us? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, and God, just for um, characters like Peter. God, characters who we can identify with, and God, who we can see, God, that it, it isn't about them. And God, I know that if Peter were here, he would be glad. He would be glad to be made less of so that you could be made more of. And God, that's our desire, God, that we would be made less of so that you could be made more of in our lives. God, I pray for your glory. God, I pray that you would use us to advance your kingdom. And God, I pray for those in this room who maybe are in that place, just like Peter was, in that moment when you called him, that are, that are almost kind of in that, that beginning of the faith process. And God, you're calling out to them, and you're simply saying, follow me, and they're on the fence, and they're fighting. God, I pray that you would, God, you would inspire them, and God, you would use your Holy Spirit to convict them and move them that they would follow you. God, today might be the day of salvation for them. And God, for those of us who are saved, God, would you never let our failures define us, but allow our faith to define us. God, we pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.